Welcome back to Jokerman Podcast. Uh, I'm Ian, and today Jokerman Podcast is about not Bob Dylan, not Lou Reed, not the Velvet Underground, but some of our favorites, Don and Walt, Steely Dan, because we're joined by the co-authors of the fantastic new book, Quantum Criminals. Let me get the subtitle here. Ramblers, Wild Gamblers, and Other Soul Survivors from the Songs of Steely Dan. It's Alex Papadimus and Joan LeMay. Hey, Hi. Hi. <laughs> uh, and it's uh, it's it's just gonna be uh, it's just gonna be the three of us today. Evans, uh, not really a mornings guy. We're uh, recording by ocean because Joan, you're over in uh, you're over in London, right? I sh- sure am for <laughs> for for the time being for another months. Yeah. Well, we've got a lot to rap about here today, uh, Don and Walt and the book and everything that went into it. Uh, but I have one question just singled off, singled out right here at the very beginning. Which one of you, in your creative partnership, which one of you is the Donald Fagan and which one of you is the Walter Becker? I'm, 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 go- I'm going to say Alex has to be Fagan <laughs> because it's just I'm, he, he, he wrote the thing. Uh, and you know he he is the teller of the stories. He is the weaver of the tales. Um, he is the maker of the magic words, and I am the painter of the pictures. Uh, a weaver of pictures that run in a dreamer of pictures that run in the night. Um, <laughs> I, I'll I, I, look. I, I'm not going to not take it. If somebody <laughs> wants to make you the Fagin, if somebody to ask you know like Ghostbusters, if you know they ask if you're a god, say yes. Uh, but. I, you know, I think uh, this this makes Joan the Walter in that uh, I I could not have done this without her. I couldn't have finished it. it. Wouldn't be finished, which is absolutely true. I think the part of the reason this yes. book exists and was not didn't just sort of stay in my you know in my brain and my hard drive as like an idea or like I got to get around to that Steely Dan book at some point was because we had this impetus and this kind of shape given by the characters, which was uh, 100% uh, Jones' idea initially. So it, it could have, it was amorphous and it became, uh, you know, morphous uh, as a result of that <laughs> of involvement. Amorphous the cat. Amorphous <laughs> the cat. And, and, but no, that, yeah. and that's like, that's what, uh, that's what Don said about Walter is that he, you know, he, he finishes the, the sentence. He finishes the things that, that I can't start. And, and Joan didn't literally do that, but uh, that is kind of what happened. Beautiful. I'm glad that you're not both fighting over being the Don or the Walt. You, you really are uh, a dynamic duo here. The, the book is fantastic. Uh, I devoured it in the space of about two days. Uh, it's everything that I always wanted to read about Steely Dan and all of the uh, island misfit toys, we could call uh, perhaps some of the characters that appear in their songs. Uh, can one or both of you guys just kind of give us a high-level picture of what exactly the book is and, and is about? Yeah, it is. How, how many illustrations are there? I keep saying there's hundreds, but there's not hundreds. There's like over 100. There's something, I think it clocked in at like around 120 if we're talking spots as well. 
something like that. Yeah, I'm saying total. So it's yeah. 120 original paintings of people and things from the Steely Dan universe, characters, real people, fake people, uh, you know, uh, imaginary people, and uh, accompanying essays dildos. by me, dildos, uh, <laughs> famous dildos. There's a, a beautiful <laughs> Philip Guston style and a painting of some some dildos, which is <laughs> that was my favorite part of the process was just being like, what if we did like suggesting these things to Joan and then getting back like you know yeah. this beautiful dildo painting, <laughs> um, just sort of trying yes. to break the machine and, <laughs> and it not working. <laughs> And, and being thrilled that UT was like, yeah, it's fine. This is fine. Full <laughs> page. That. And and I wrote text about all of these things, kind of just jumping off of the, using these characters to sort of shape a narrative about the, the whole history of Steely Dan and all of the, the weird, uh, basically things that it reminded me of, things that it, it brought up for me and, you know, just making connections outward uh, to, you know, things that were, things that were referenced, people that were referenced and, you know, how those people kind of defined the the time in which Don and Walter lived and made this music. Um, and, and yeah, and the result is uh, what, what you see before you, this giant D and D handbook of a book about really Steely Dan. It really is beautiful. It's got a nice hard cover, big bright yellow splash with Don and Walt on the page. It's uh, it's eye catching, uh, and those paintings are absolutely amazing. And yeah, it's it's a really interesting kind of combination. I think of like there's there's some Steely Dan like history, just like here's the story of Steely Dan. There's also a lot of like criticism of Steely Dan and other music and things that happen around the same time. There's some memoir elements of it, and then obviously all of the beautiful, amazing. Uh, work that you did as well, Joan. What, um, I guess both of you, uh, whoever wants to go first, feel free to, to jump in, but uh, history with Steely Dan, like, w- did you both kind of, because, I mean, we're all relatively young people here. We're, we're, we're all coming after the initial wave of Steely Dan fans in the 70s. Where, when, how did you make connection with the uh, with the boys uh, in your lives? Right. We're, we're all spiritual boomers in, in Molly Lambert's <laughs> exactly. excellent phrase. Um, <laughs> Joan goes back further uh, th- than I do. So you should go first. Joan. My very first no, no crap uh, musical memory is of Steely Dan. Um, when I was little, my my parents had very few records. They had just a, a handful of inches of records. And uh, the that was all it ever grew to became. And it, it grew to encompass the whole Steely Dan catalog. There was Linda Ronstadt in there. There was James Taylor. There was Jethro Tull's Thick as a Brick uh, and a few a few other records. Um, and when I was really, I, w- I was like two or three. And I remember trying to reach the turntable, which was up on a console and barely being able to like, not quite, but the day that I could, uh, I, I loved can't buy a thrill. I think I was attached to it as a baby because of the bright colors of the <laughs> and it, you know obviously i had no yeah i i had i had no uh no ability to 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 parse things and with any degree of nuance or comprehension really but i remember hefting can't buy a thrill on the turntable plopping down on my parents brown shag carpet and being happy and that and i have been a lifelong Dan fan um, through all of the phases of my 
everything. I we we've we've you know we've been really lucky to get to have a lot of these these discussions these these last couple of weeks and got into one about you know what it is to to like the band through different phases of your life and like when you're a teenager um particularly and you you identify you you self-identify with like man I've, I've got a subhuman's back patch and uh and <laughs> i'm listening to crass and i'm totally dumpster diving i was like that kid but also loved gaucho <laughs> so it was you know it, it, a, a real through line for me my whole my whole my whole life i just love that story because it's it's literally it's like uh, 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 object permanence and then steely dan like that was the next thing that you <laughs> mastered like it's, it's yes. you were made to do this whether you, you do it at the time or not yes um mine is yeah. not that good i mean it's not it's nowhere near the same but i you know i i just uh there was a there was a, a period of my life where i mean I, I i probably i bought these records in college when it was really cheap to buy them and just out of you know mostly curiosity and you know thinking like oh imagine me buying a steely dan record and of course you know cut to cut to me sure 10 15 years later promoting a book i've written about steely dan because <laughs> i can't stop thinking about them because that's that's how it works on you but yeah, I mean, I think that my real sort of bond with it was formed uh, in my, you know, sort of 20s and early 30s when I was working at a rock magazine with other rock magazine people. And we were sort of uh, very invested editorially in promoting uh, like the new New York rock music and like strokes type of stuff. And like sure. after a long day of pretending to be excited about the Mooney Suzuki or whatever, you had to <laughs> deep. You didn't, wow. The last thing that you wanted to listen to was like hot new bands, you know, coming out. And so when we would all hang out after work, we would listen to like, there was a really big moment when we all got on the, the press list for Dick's picks. I think that really changed everything in a lot of people's lives and really diverted the course of our sort of musical uh, education. Yeah. So we're listening to like Dead Bootlegs or Gaucho uh, when we kind of, you know, chilled at somebody's apartment. And so I spent a lot of time, wore a lot of weary hours down uh, thinking about Steely Dan. And so that's, you know... Uh, a, a few of, I don't have a lot of acknowledgements, but a lot of the people that I used to do that with are acknowledged uh, because they also read this book before it went out. Um, so that's, yeah, it was, it was much more though, like kind of as, as you get older and as you start to question your, you know, the, the kind of uh, punk derived beliefs that tell you Steely Dan is not a great band. Um, you start to figure Steve this Albini out. Steve Albini type beliefs. Exactly. I mean, but God bless Steve Albini. I like we we want him on that wall. I think I speak for the team quantum yeah. criminals when I say that we want him. We we want we don't want Steve Albini to move on the issue of Steely Dan. That 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 would be a betrayal of Steve Albini. Absolutely. Uh, the, the the Albini that, that that we know. And I love that thread. I think it's hilarious. I love how just like uh, you know philosophically opposed he is to Steely Dan. <laughs> how or how affronted his philosophy is by everything about. The, the whole Steely Dan thing. And I love that there are two different <laughs> kinds of perfectionist who could never agree, uh, who right. could never come to the table. Yes. There's just nothing there. It's like the horseshoe <laughs> theory in politics where like if you go far enough left, you come back around to the right, which, you know, that that's probably not actually true. But like Albini and Steely Dan, like that actually seems kind of true. Like if you go far enough in the Albini direction, you just turn into Walter Becker eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but that's a great uh, sort of segue into, you know, an interesting topic or conversation, one that you guys wrestle with in the book um, through the paintings and through the um, through the text, I think, 
and that is the uh, sort of the waxing and waning of Steely Dan's popularity uh, over time. Um, and I know, like, um, early 2000s, like around the, the comeback uh, tour, um, Two Against Nature era, they were decidedly not, you know, kind of on vogue. There's that infamous Pitchfork review where they gave them like a one point something or whatever uh, and just spent the entire thing shitting on the record, uh, and then at the same time, the Grammys are giving them Album of the Year ahead of Eminem and Beck and uh, Radiohead, which is a great focus of a couple of the uh, Two Against Nature songs towards the end of the book. I'm sure this is a question that you've talked about before uh, and we'll, <laughs> we'll be talking about again in the future, but uh, the journey that uh, Don and Walt have taken throughout the culture uh, uh, that has led them to this present moment where you can put out a 250-page beautifully illustrated book dissecting every song in the Steely Dan universe, and it's a major uh, going concern. Um, seems unlikely. That, that, that result seems unlikely uh, if you flash back, you know, two decades or so. What, what, what is it? Why is it uh, in your conceptions that this has, uh, this has been the journey that they've taken? I mean, we'll see if you can put out a 250-page beautifully <laughs> illustrated, but it's like, you know, we'll, we'll, see how, we'll see how it does. But it did feel it, it felt like a weird thing to be doing when we started doing it. And now it feels it feels almost basic. <laughs> like it's it's I've been saying like the, the next thing I've been trying to figure out, like what the next thing is that we're going to, you know, try it. Like, is it going to be NRBQ after this? Like, where are the hipsters going? Because it's like <laughs> the Grateful Dead thing is obviously it's like mainstreamed <laughs> out now. It's like everybody they're just fully back. Yep. You know, they're, you know, they're just like what they're as famous as Dua Lipa now. They're on the same level. It's just, <laughs> you know, but so it's and then Steely Dan's like about to, you know, about to hit. And so I'm trying to figure out who's the next what's what's the next thing to be like to be reclaimed. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. It's a, there's a lot of explanations, I think, for why this why this happened, why it has happened the, the, the way that it has. I think there's something about them. I can't I think we can't discount how memeable donald and walter are mm. because they're so <laughs> visually odd and it's such a they're such a perfect there's no other you're not going to mistake them for any other band and there's something about those two the the strain the visual strangeness of those two guys that lends itself to you know to them being a meme template for people to you know to make jokes about and then i think what happens is you get into this you know it's what happened to me it's like you sort of approach them ironically you creep up to them with your with your irony shields on and then <laughs> the this music starts to to work on you and then you're you're like this is this is better than all of that it's it reminds me it has all the sort of the pleasure the hits all of the pleasure centers of any other kind of yacht rock stuff from that period but there's there's this other layer in there and once you start to to see the kind of interplay between those two things, I mean, then and then you're lost. This is how you end up writing a 250 page book <laughs> about Steely Dan. Like that's I feel like that's you know, that's that's part of of what's happened. And also, I just think we've you know, I think that we've mined all of the cool stuff out of a certain part of the past that continues to really compel us. And so we're getting to the stuff that was once uncool i mean right. like it's there you know you guys do a show about the period of bob dylan that like you know <laughs> that was focused on the part of bob dylan that no that people throw away yeah. you know the the sort of like everything in between his best since blood on the tracks all those like all the you know the kind of the, the you know the the, the shoulders of, of and, and seasons of dylan you know like that that i think that means something too i think right. that's how 
it's it's part of like going back to you know looking at a it's a different it's thinking about a different 70s than the one that we were sold and you know kind of by by rock criticism and by the the culture in general um that's those the, uh, that's a few thoughts yeah uh, i i i think there has been no um no particular point in history in which the soup of the discourse uh quote unquote has been what it is able to be now just sort of the wildfire speed with which ideas can travel and thoughts can travel and the uh the the openness of you talk talking about the kids um you know i'm in my mid 40s alex is in his mid 40s where uh, the, there's not to what as far as I, as far as i can discern the same kind of um walls up and gates up and and things with with uh younger listeners that that ex, that, that there was when we were younger listeners so i think that's a that's a part of it too. Yeah, I think the the contextlessness nature of the internet, you know, and the way that music is consumed and and uh, thought about and written about today, really like works in Celia Dan's favor because you know the whole like punks versus metalheads versus like jocks and nerds, like the Breakfast Club kind of element of the way things used to be, you know, in the seventies and eighties, like all of those all of those barriers are just gone at this point and. You can listen to Babylon Sisters and you can listen to Fugazi and you can listen to 1988 Bob Dylan and like it all makes sense to listen to together at this point. Um, and uh, and any sort of like uh, um, hesitancy that you might have had as a listener in the past about like, oh, this is actually kind of embarrassing to be admitting that I like Steely Dan. Like that's just out the window at this point. Everybody's at the, the same lunch table. Exactly. Um Steely Dan as a bi-coastal band. I think this is a really interesting topic that you raise in the book, too. Uh, and that was something that I hadn't really conceived of. But, uh, like, you know, obviously it, it's there. It's in the text. It's in their history. Barred to Los Angeles, back to New York, and then writing about the opposite environment that they're in. Um, but the, the I just, like, it, it really is kind of a fascinating concept to conceive of, especially like today when the, the you know the coastal elite narrative or whatever is stronger than it ever might have been um what like how does their nature as this New York to Los Angeles to New York to Los Angeles you know the back and forth east coast west coast thing how does that kind of play into the records that were produced and the overall kind of mythos i mean i think they happen to really really sound like the uh, you know, they sound like they're studio musicians, right? Because they sort of the, the the band after a certain point is just the best guys in whatever city they were working out of. <laughs> and so like you can, first of all, like you can hear the difference between the New York guys and the LA guys, you know, and at cer a certain point, like the, 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 the history of Steely Dan, they started to feel like, you know, they've written about this in their, their liner notes. Have you ever, you've read the, the, have you ever read the liner notes to the reissues that came out in the two thousands when they sort of like remastered all the Dan records, like they're really good. They're really well-written like Donald and Walter are incredible writers and they write really well together. And they talk about how like, you know, they started to feel like the, the LA cats were a little soft. And so they had to go back to New York and start working with the, you know, the New York guys on some of the, <laughs> the you know, 
the, the later the later records because they, they they were you know they were feeling a little you know a uh, little wimpy um but yeah i mean i think that's probably i think that's the most important thing about them in a way is that they were you know sort of they were in los angeles and of los angeles in terms of the music but they had this just really new york sensibility and they were mm. looking at the you know they were looking at at the kind of decadent la of the you know early to mid 70s with this you know very sort of gimlet eye shaped by you know you know growing up on the east coast and being you know sort of not in new didn't grow up in new york city but grew up sort of you know like wanting to be like new yorkers obsessed with that you know that right. world and like imagining you know that world and everything and you know i've had conversations about this during like promoting this book where like you know people are like you know you can just say jewish like because that's like sort of it's like you know and i'm like well i don't exactly feel comfortable with it because but like that's that kind of it's like a cultural you know it's like a cultural sure. jewishness that comes with new york you know because of you know only fagan you know was of the tribe but donald was you know from Queens and sort of felt like he had some, you know, kind of, he was conversant uh, with that whole thing and that, that whole sensibility. So it's like, that's part of it, but it's like, it's just, it's the, you know, it's a New York cynicism and it's a New York kind of like speed of thought, uh, uh, you know, mixed with this, you know, very sort of this music that was very much, you know, mellow kind of LA session guy stuff. And like that, you know, that those two streams coming together, you know, it, I think is 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 what shaped Steely Dan and like kind of having an adversarial relationship to your kind of to your chill sunny environment right in a way uh, you know and that's mm -hmm. like I think that's part of it you know, I, I think that's you know one of the most important things and you know as as somebody who spent a lot of time uh, you know on both coasts in my life like i think that's maybe you know that's that's maybe part of part of why i relate to it you know that sort of the allure of los angeles and also feeling like it's a a, a slick trap in the desert maybe. right <laughs> you're gonna fall in the hole and never Absolutely. get out and the the the, the depression yeah. on magnolia boulevard is gonna swallow you up it's also interesting i think thinking about new york new york la as it relates to their uh relationship with the future and the past mm. um always always wanting to be of the new york of the past and sort of looking you know science fictionally at uh at the world also in a in a more la kind of way um sort of what that does to their to their to the stew of all of it it's the New York of Alfred Bester that they're sort of striving for. They're always yes. recreating the sci-fi New York that they imagined, you know, when they were kids, you know, and like, they talk about Bester, like writing, yes. the, you know, these very New York set, like demolished man is like a future New York that really feels like now. And, you know, all, all of that. Yeah. That's a, a fascinating concept. It, it, uh, Donald, obviously, you know, uh, as we see with like the Nightfly is like obsessed with this, like, retro vision of the future and is also obsessed with the past himself you know his fixation on disc jockeys and stuff like that um and so that new york of the past los angeles being kind of like the next generation of cities you know like the the second half of the 20th century city as opposed to new york being the first half of the 20th century city um and so like getting to that future and realizing oh wait it's like fucked up and, and shitty and weird and vacant um there, there is something like you know essentially uh, Don and Waltish about that um, that dichotomy there. Um, their origin story too, I think, is fan uh, is fascinating. And that was something that I hadn't really like, you know, kind of dug into or or um, 
been as aware of, I think, going into this book, because I'm more, you know, as as a uh, third wave Steely Dan fan, whatever we want to call it, uh, you know, uh, the the Royal Scam Asia Gaucho trilogy, uh, and then even the, you know, the um, post-2000 reunion records, like, that's my kind of focus, my, my fixation is on the, the heavy shit, and the earlier stuff is great to listen to, but it's just, it doesn't interest me quite as much, you know, Katie Lyde is, like, right there in the middle where, like, it starts to get a little more fascinating to me, um, but this, like, they kind of accidentally become a band, um, uh, starting off as these brill-building songwriters and then getting swept out to Los Angeles to, uh, you know, work at ABC Records and living in fucking Encino, right? And, like, being driven over the hill uh, every day to what... It's just, it's such a funny kind of concept to me. Um, what, what... How do you feel that kind of genesis as the band, um, you know, again, almost accidentally falling into working together as professional musicians playing their own songs, right, instead of just writing songs for other people. How did that inform those first couple records and then where they would ultimately go? Well, yeah, they never set out to be a, to be a rock band, right? Like they imagined, they, they show up, they get out of Bard College, they go to, they do the thing that at the end of the 60s is like, you know, the sort of a, a weird retro thing to do. They're like, where's Tin Pan Alley? Where's the Brill <laughs> Building? We're going to go and try to sell our songs <laughs> To music publishers and they they you know they do it and they 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 sort of set up this thing with kenny vance from jay and the americans who's you know that's already like it just you're in it, it feels like the 50s you're falling Another back universe. in universe yeah like somehow he's the only one who answers the door and so they're getting paid you know 40 bucks a song to write these things that no one wants no they're steely dan songs through and through so no <laughs> one could ever record them except steely dan and so they're writing this music that is you know it, it is their sensibility it is skewed in their way and they're developing they're learning to write together and like you can listen to those demos like on you know they're out on all the streamers now you can sort of check out like the stuff they wrote in the real building trying to sell to like the grassroots or barbara streisand or somebody <laughs> like that that very few people ended up recording and so they get eventually at some point they're like we can't you know they have another deal and they're like we can't keep paying you to just write these songs that nobody wants. You have to record them. And like, that's how Steely Dan ends up forming, roughly speaking. And so they have, it's like this ad hoc thing that just kind of keeps going. And they're like, we'll name our band after a dildo. This isn't going to last. We don't, we're not going to be tied. We're <laughs> yeah, this still is no, be, no. <laughs> this, there's no, there's no way that we're still going to be touring in 2023 under this name that, so we don't, we don't need to commit to it. Jesus. You know, it's like the way that you'd name your sub stack or something, you know, just sort of like, oh, I guess yeah. I'll keep doing this. Right. <laughs> I also love Fagan as reluctant singer. Yeah. Because, yes. Yeah. So impossible to, to, to think of these songs without his, without that voice. Yeah. But he doesn't want to do it. That's what, and like he doesn't, and they're writing things that are out literally outside of his like pitch range and so that's part of why they have david palmer on the first record because they are literally maybe this guy can sing this because they're writing for other artists and so they're writing for the the range of a barbara streisand or somebody like that and so they end up with you know this dude who also kind of gives them a focal point gives them a front man uh that everybody can look at who like wears cool pants and stuff like that and looks like a you know he should be the singer of a band in a way that that donald doesn't <laughs> and kind of yeah at every at every turn it's like they're you know 
they make it sound, I mean, this is part of their mythology, but like they make it sound like those early records were kind of like gun to your head. Like if you want to keep paying your rent, you need to be in a band. Like it's, <laughs> you know, and I don't, I mean, that's part of the mythos, but that's, that's a, a, like a, what I love about it. And then, you know, gradually they get to the point where they, they're continuing to write stuff that's beyond the ability of these players and so they kind of throw everybody out of the boat or people, you know, people leave of their own accord and go off, you know, Skunk and Michael go off to the Doobie Brothers. And then, you know, they kind of, you know, sort of just get rid of everybody except the creative core and then start looking out to this pool of talent in Los Angeles and then New York that they can kind of build a band out of. And, right. you know, that's it's antithetical to the concept of a rock band right of the guys like the sir you know we're brothers we're going to do this all the way like and, and and you know that's they didn't have that that chip in their heads they didn't have that that feeling of, of wanting it they the two of them were i think you know the, that was that was the brotherhood and everybody else was kind of dispensable uh, which is you know it's an all in the service of these songs this episode of jokerman podcast is presented by distro kid over a million artists rely on DistroKid to distribute their music and get it into all of the places it needs to go. Your Spotify's, your Apple Music's, your YouTube's, your TikTok's, your Tidal's, your Instagram's, and any other streaming service of note. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy. With unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100%, that's right, 100, all of them, folks, of their royalties and earnings. DistroKid comes with tons of great features, including Mixia, which allows DistroKid users to put the finishing touches on their tracks in just minutes, getting a customizable and polished end result that anyone can feel confident in before sharing it with the world. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android, so go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store to download it today. Totally. Yeah, it's almost like the like the opposite of a rock band story where like typically there's like, you know, the couple people at the beginning and then like you bring in the bass player and then like they got a drummer and then like over time, over a couple of years, like oh, the whole, you know, the core has been put together. It's like they, they sort of like started out with this core and then like like demade the band over the course of the 70s and, and stripped away all of the uh, extraneous parts until it was just these two absolute psychopaths. Uh, indulging each other's worst impulses uh, to great artistic effect, obviously. Um, one of my favorite chapters in the book is uh, the one on everything you did uh, from The Royal Scam, which is maybe like one of my like top tier favorite Dan songs just ever. Um, uh, you know, all of the, the big major hits included. I just cannot get enough of that one. And you draw this really fascinating dichotomy between Steely Dan and the Eagles, you know, based around the lyric in that song. One of the funniest fucking lines in the entire discography. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that? Because that was a really fascinating kind of um, brainworm that I had never really conceived of. But obviously, the two of them were both, you know, the Dan and the Eagles were both operating there in mid-70s Los Angeles, you know, at the, like, heights of this, like, studio wizardry, you know, classical LP format kind of music industry. 
uh, but represented very different things and had very different sensibilities about the world. Yeah, I mean, I think they they kind of weirdly they converged in terms of sensibility, or they sort of they sort of crossed. Like, I think the Eagles eventually became as kind of jaded and cynical about L.A. as Steely Dan had been all along. Like, they kind of, on, like, the long run, my feeling is, and, like, Hotel California into the long run is, like, the, is the cynical Eagles. And it's the beginning of, of Don Henley as this sort of voice of the kind of, you know, disappointed boomer who saw everything kind of fail. It's the beginning of the end of the innocence Don Henley and, you know, that that which is kind of my favorite don is is don you know it's, it's don shaking uh-huh. his head at all of this <laughs> at these like i can't believe what the, what has become of us you know i i, I enjoy that about Heather henley like on no no like unironically uh but yeah they were i sort of initially i always envisioned them as these rivals right like the tv show the the web show yacht rock portrays them as the the, they're the nerds who get bullied by the jocks in the eagles like the (laughs) eagles are given noogies to don and walter right they're real they're they're the eagles like it's you know it's a real but the truth is is more complicated they were they they were kind of you know compatriots not you know they were collaborators occasionally there's three eagles sing on fm on that song the the soundtrack cut fm Mm mm-hmm they shared a manager eventually, like when they, they 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 end up they pair up with Irving Azoff, and because of what he's done for the Eagles, because of everything he'd done, they're like, oh, this is we we want what you ha- you know like we see what you have done for others, and we want that for ourselves. Like that's they said they liked Irving's taste for the jugular, and so they took him on as their as their manager, and he builds up Asia into the commercial house that it became. But yeah, I like the idea of them as as having. You know, they sort of went back and forth as rivals, right? They had, you know, they sort of tweaked each other back and forth because supposedly Steely Knives in Hotel California, the reference to Steely Knives is is about Donald and Walter and their, their uh, you know, their rapier wit, uh, <laughs> you know, making jokes about the Eagles. The Eagles were like, yeah, we heard that. We, we hear you making these jokes about how ever, you know, all these people, because it's like, it's, it's. I love that line, like turn up the Eagles, because it's it's like that's what this the, the Eagles is the music that they imagine regular people having sort of like depressing domestic disputes right. are listening to instead of Steely Dan. <laughs> exactly. That's why nobody's listening that's to putting on the Royal Scamp <laughs> in, uh, in, 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 in that moment. But yeah, the, the, my favorite fact is like when you know the when the Eagles challenge Rolling Stone magazine staff to a softball game because they're unhappy with their coverage in Rolling Stone. So like, we're going to settle this on the softball field. The seventies coverage is so good, man. It's just so, I, I just, I love like, imagine that happening today. There's nothing, there's no version of that, but you know, Don sits in the uh, Eagles rooting section um, up there with, uh, I think like Linda Ronstadt or somebody, you know, just like and he, he's cheering, he's cheering for the Eagles against Rolling Stone. <laughs> Um, and, and yeah, it just, if you've never, if you, there's, if you're listening to this show, you know, all of this already, but like, if you, for some reason are hearing this and you've never Googled pictures of the Eagles playing softball against the staff of Rolling Stone in like 1975, take a moment, just dim the lights and just like take a little cruise through Google images at this. It's some of the coolest (laughs) looking humans you've ever seen in your life. I might need to actually pull this up myself because I have not. I don't think I've seen these pictures. I'm. I have oh always God, been dude. sort of a staunchly like not like right. anti Eagles kind of guy, but just like not interested in it at all. And like you know, uh, I uh, I do love like '80s era uh, Henley, you know, Boys of Summer kind of stuff. 
Uh, but uh, the 70s stuff, damn, these pictures are pretty sick. They're wearing like pirates looking jerseys, like the black and yellow. Jesus Christ. Right, Henley, yeah, they look like Henley looks like, 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 look, look at Joe Walsh, looks like a madman in this. Uh, Henley looks like Dennis Eckersley. Like, it's just really, really. <laughs> They went all out to a degree. They're, look, they were there was a jockey element to the Eagles, right? And so they really went for it with like the the black under the eye, you know, and all of that. Like it's 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 hilarious because who who goes that hard when you're playing against a bunch of music magazine staffers? Exactly. Yeah. Literally, like the 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 biggest hitter or like the you know the 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 I think it's I think he was a pitcher like Charles M. Young is like the strongest guy on their bench. Uh, you know, it's like, come on. But like they, they show up like as if they're going to play a real baseball team. And I, I love that about them. You can't not sort of love the Eagles a little bit for just their commitment and their, you know, lack of a sense of humor about record reviews. <laughs> I wish someone in this, uh, this uh, you know, modern music industry cared enough about the things that critics were saying to challenge them to a softball game. <laughs> Somebody has got to be like playing pickup basketball against like pitchfork. Right, exactly. That, that would have. We need to get it's, out there it's on the court. Gotta happen. It, it, <laughs> yeah. Tame Impala, pitchfork, out on the West Fourth Street courts in New York City, <laughs> <laughs> just throwing down buckets, Jesus. making it rain. Dan album covers, Joan, as the resident artist of this uh, mm-hmm. uh, luscious invention for three, um, some of the most dog shit covers, uh, I'll just say, uh, of all records uh, <laughs> ever, uh, in a in a charming way, I think, um, and a couple absolute bangers of, you know, like just some of the highest, highest highs um, uh, that you can ever imagine, uh, but a lot of it is just fascinatingly grotesque from the like hodgepodge child's collage of can't buy a thrill to the whatever is going on on the royal scam <laughs> with the, the, yeah. you could call it like the the architecture of capitalism's bloodthirsty drive for profit or something Alex with the the serpent head buildings uh, just mm-hmm. what is your take as the as the visual artist uh, on some of this uh, visual quote unquote art? There's definitely a, a commitment to having no one single cohesive visual language, mm. and in in especially, you know, during the time that the first handful of records came out it was uh that that was not that was not earth's most common thing um it, it they're definitely all over the place i think you know royal scam is is uh maybe font wise now i'm going to say countdown to ecstasy font wise is the most abhorrent um <laughs> Can't buy a thrill is is also it's just a just a f- festival of 
ridiculousness. It's kind of like a Glauco Rodriguez uh, painting, but there's also the the Rolling Stones lips um, slightly with the with the mouth. There's there's yeah, and then and then Gaucho is a uh, a tile that I believe exists. Where is the Where's the tile from? It's I believe Buenos it's a Aries, Portuguese tile. Yeah. Buenos Aires, maybe. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I feel it people up, are I always. Remember. Yeah, it's still there. People always Instagram themselves with it. You see it every so often. People can go. They do. Wow. They do. Yeah. But yeah, my my take on them as a whole is is uh, that I would love to have been a fly on the wall when it got to the part where those decisions were being made. Uh, I'd I'd love to know, um, you know, who who made what calls the countdown to ecstasy uh is uh painted who who is it it's uh it's uh i'm looking for i'm looking up her name we will couple we'll dorothy search. white donald dorothy, fagan's girlfriend dorothy at the time white. wow Thank i did you. not know that jesus yes. christ yes <laughs> yes i knew i knew i knew she was dating him at the time but then the the story behind that is they there were originally just two figures and the record company was like no we need more and so more were added so it's just this kind of like weird ghost party that looks like it's just mint and strawberry ice cream that melted um yeah it's it's there's a there's a whole there's a whole cornucopia there aren't cohesive colors there are no cohesive fonts just from a design standpoint it's a real it's a real mixed bag. That stupid little like face in the corner of Countdown to Ecstasy, just on the one figure. It's <laughs> ridiculous. It it really feels desultory that one little face. Like, oh, you need another band member, really? Like, we're putting that in there. Yeah. Like, yeah, they don't have anything <laughs> that you can. It's like, and it, you know, you think about like Journey had this the Scarab, and it was always you knew what the Journey record looked like, and like Chicago records kind of all like look of a piece, and like right, ELO right. records like kind of all had a had a thing. There's yes. nothing you can tattoo on yourself as easily as like a, as a Steely Dan person. I've thought about it, obviously, but like you know, there's the, there's the, <laughs> a lot of good Gaucho tattoos, but like there's no there's no logo that you can kind of put like you know make a patch out of easily. Yeah, like the Steely, you know, from no. from the Dead, which you go yeah. into right. in the uh, in the Kid Charlemagne uh, chapter, which is another fascinating and fantastic just sort of uh, uh, opportunity to move in a very different direction uh, away from the narrative. It's always just been fascinating to me that like this band, these two, Don and Walt, who had such just like a a signature sonic palette by the end of it. Uh, and B, just such exacting, incredibly high standards for themselves and for, for the musicians that they brought in and just cycled through endlessly in the studio. Visually speaking, you know, from a visual branding standpoint, it seemed like they just did not give a shit at all about what these records looked like when they were on sale in record stores. I mean, the Asia cover, obviously, and I think Gaucho are, are two absolute fantastic ones. And uh, that was another great chapter in the book where you go into... The model's name, I forget her name, the model on Asia, um, a Japanese model, uh, and her kind of history. Um, those two are absolute, you know, kind of high points, uh, obviously, as, uh, you know, um, sort of uh, exotic as they might be branding uh, things with, with Asia, some of the questions on that. But, uh, yeah, everything else is just, it's it's an absolute <laughs> dumpster dive. <laughs> 
It's a grab bag. It's literally, I mean, it literally is a dumpster dive. It's like the Royal Scam cover, I think, was like a rejected Van Morrison cover. Yep. <laughs> like, it's like somebody was just making weird album covers for people. And it's like, oh, we'll, we'll place this somewhere. And it's just so strange that like it has it, but this, I guess, spoke to the Van Morrison album that it was supposed to go on. And now <laughs> it speaks to Royal Scam in, in, a, in a different way. I, I just love all of them, though. I've sort of come to like all of them, but I do think that's part of why I never got into it was because it didn't have that, you know. <clears throat> There's something about, you know, like like Joni Mitchell's Blue or like Harvest or something like that. Like, that you're curious about them because they kind of look great. Sure. And you're sort of you're like something's going on in there. And like those Joni records, like it was like, you know, it's just it's a lot of it is Joni's own art. And like there's something about that that yes. like it's sort of it's it, it, it's part of the the thing that grabs you about it, you want to know what's going on. And this doesn't, this doesn't feel in that way. Like, you know, like you said, it doesn't feel like the art necessarily proceeds from that sensibility. I mean, I think also about like Katie lied, which is like, when you, the more you look at it, it's like completely out of focus, you know, Such it's an out of focus. Shitty drawing. picture. Yeah. Terrible oh, picture. It's a oh. super <laughs> shitty picture. Super shitty. Yeah. Like why? Of, of, why? Yeah. Here's was, a picture of an aphid's ass. Just, uh, this, is, this is it. This is what this is what we're going with. I mean, at a certain level, I think I, I guess it does make sense uh, because, I mean, the fact that Steely Dan as a band exists was sort of a joke to begin with. Right. Like, you know, and, and so if you're just going to keep keep that joke going, you might as well really commit to the bit and be like, hey, it, it's ridiculous that we exist as a unit and that we're singing these songs and putting them on records and record companies are releasing them and people are buying them. So we might as we might as well make it even more ridiculous and just make it the most heinous, unappealing kind of shit you can imagine. The pretzel logic, how stupidly like just the guy with the pretzel I in do Central love Park. That cover, that uh, is my that's that's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, I we talked about this. You, I think you've convinced me that that is the best one because it's the best. It's the most. It's the most clear visual statement that they ever made. Yeah, and it, I feel. That it, it it also there's there is at least some sort of atmospheric hint at what is inside. Just j- yeah, the, there's there's some some sort of through line there. Interesting. Uh-huh. The image matches yeah. the music to to some degree. Uh, it, 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 tangentially. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> tangentially. Yeah, that uh, really grainy black and white it's a new york photograph like it's a you know that, that's a photograph they found i think they didn't take that for the right. cover they just kind of mm-hmm. picked it out and it seems to speak yeah. to it's the it, it is the it's a little bit the the imaginary new york and i think it's also a little bit mm-hmm. kind of like it's i always felt like that's donald and walter kind of comically belittling the work that they're doing as if they're they're these just these guys with the, the cart and the hot water kind of selling their wares <laughs> on the street which was always the way that they presented their art they're always like yeah get you yeah get your steely dan songs here you know because that one especially too is like these are songs they wrote a lot of the pretzel logic songs are really old they wrote them in the brill building era and it does the pretzel logic is the most kind of like you know it's the one where they're reckoning with the you know themselves as as entertainers as artists because it's the one where they're transitioning from being the band mark one to being the kind of ad hoc ship of theseus band that plays on the rest of those records and <laughs> yeah i feel like there's something about just them being like you want salt <laughs> yeah <laughs> mustard um on that note moving 
through, you know, the the initial run of the band, you know, in the 70s, becoming this ship of Theseus uh, band by the end of it, it, it feels to me like, you know, there's, there's a great line, I think, in the... I think it's in the Gaucho chapter. I, I, I have the quote on my screen right here, but I didn't note down what chapter it's from. But uh, this, you know, it sort of sums up everything that they end up becoming by the end of this. Uh, you write, Alex, it might not have been the first time their perfectionism crossed the line into madness, but on Gaucho, that side of their process became the process. Um, you know, by the end of this whole twisted tale that really only lasted like seven, eight years, a really short amount of time when you think about it. Like that was like, wasn't Donald Trump running for president seven years ago at this point, right? Like it, <laughs> it, it does not seem like it actually took that long to go from uh, uh, where they were in the Brill Building to uh, the commanding heights of Gaucho. Um, but uh, it does seem like they, you know, kind of lost their way in a sense uh, by the end of the 70s like like they lost their sense of like the whole sense of irony that they had started out with seemed to be you know sort of stripped away and they started to take the joke seriously so that by the end of it you just have this like incredibly airtight airless sound that they're ever ser- they're forever searching for in the studio and you know can almost never actually get to they do obviously end up with uh, some usable takes at the end of it um, and uh, are finally happy with it uh, after many, many sessions. <laughs> but um, do you feel like they kind of had more to do, I guess, together at that time, or was it sort of necessary that it all kind of collapsed that way under under its own weight at the end of the 70s? I mean, I think Walter was on his own trajectory at that moment Mm. you know and he's 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 got his issues that he's struggling with i think for you know maybe for the life of the band depending on you know which accounts you listen to and he eventually he needed to go off and kind of you know do what he did in the 80s which was sort of you know clean up get married you know think through you know become a like an adult in a a different way because they're also really young that's what's crazy they're all like almost they're they're barely 30 30 yeah like that's crazy i didn't i hadn't done anything (laughs) like uh, like they made seven incredible records and i was sort of nothing i don't know i was like you know figuring out how to rent an apartment at that point and like so i think that's what you have to remember too is that that arc all happens in a classic kind of rock band way they've like been through so much by the time they are you know at the point where like anybody else is sort of like get you know just getting a job and figuring it out you know like living a life so they had to, I think it had to end because they had to sort of, you know, they, they, they had sort of, you, you arrest at the moment you join a successful rock band. And so they had to get out and kind of become the people they were going to become. But yeah, I mean, I think creatively, they, they sort of, you know, you hear Walter talk about, I think it's in the classic albums documentary or something. He's like, sir, you know, we, at the time we felt like we were always rising toward the light. And they were like, they would sort of, they felt like their early stuff was bad and they were just getting better and better. And they were finally getting to the point of making the the records they heard in their heads. And, you know, they sort of, they're, but, but then you look at what the process was on Gaucho and like what they were putting themselves through in order to do that. And it's funny because what they're doing basically is what any band with Pro Tools, now any band at all, basically <laughs> recording in a modern sort of studio environment, you're doing stuff, you're punching in, 
you're going like, okay, I don't love the way I delivered that line. So let me sing it again. Let me sort of like, like, like let's tighten up the drums. Like that's like literally like the red hot chili peppers are doing that. And like your <laughs> friend's band that is playing and, you know, making a demo in a garage, like they're scooching things around and you're moving it. And it's just like, you're cutting and pasting now. And it's the same way. It's like exactly like what you're going to do with this podcast, Ian, when we are finished talking, like you're going to sort of, you know, take out the, you know, the breaths and whatever and do it. But they were doing it with like, the most involved this system that their engineer had built the Wendell, the Wendell. machine, the Wendell, which is like apparently the hardest fucking thing in the world to program. Like you have to type in these, like all this code. It's like sort of, I remember as a kid, like you would get the, you know, the program thing from like games magazine and you would type in a, you know, in basic and you type in a million lines of basic and then something really dumb would happen at the end <laughs> of that. And like, this is what they had to do is like taping a million lines of code. And then like, like one kick drum is in the right place and then gradually they could sort of piece it together so like they had the the, the technology to kind of let sort of take their perfectionism to its logical extent and within you know a few decades like that would get much easier to use but at the time it was it was terrible and you just imagine like you know because if you've ever spent time with like bands in a studio like it's still really tedious like it's right. interesting for the first few minutes and it's interesting in spurts but like it's really boring and now imagine how tedious it is when it takes an hour to move a snare mm. <laughs> from this bar to the next bar and so i think that just you know the combination and then it's and and so it ends up being donald and like Gary Katz and like the, you know, then Roger Nichols, like kind of making this thing, you know, without Walter even there. And I think that was probably a lot of the joy went out of it because so much of it was about Donald and Walter kind of making each other laugh and kind of being, you know, being each other's kind of other opposite number. And right. so I think that's probably like the sadness of Gaucho is that that is deteriorating, that that partnership is, you know, that is, is no longer like the core of it and like once the core starts to decay in that way like they have to go off but like and you can tell because they were you know they, they went up and did solo records but they they start working together again really quickly and i think that you know they, they end up kind of producing each other's albums and playing on each other's albums and eventually touring together in the 90s and like they can't you know they can't stay away. Like there's something about Donald and Walt. They knew each other in a previous life. You have to, there's some, there's some history there that like, you know, there's a, there's a pull, I think. And I think that's the, you know, it's, it's the romance at the center of Steely Dan for me is, is, no. is those, those two guys. <laughs> Absolutely. A romance for the ages. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's always been kind of fascinating to me that, that as soon as Gaucho kind of collapses or excuse me, as soon as the band collapses following Gaucho, uh, as Gaucho was coming out, really, um, they go off and Dawn does the Nightfly relatively quickly. Uh, but then they're both just like silent, really, at least as like their own recording artists, right? Walter is producing and, and Donald is doing some stuff. You know, I think he has a, a, a song on, um, you mentioned that in another chapter, he's got a song on some movie, right? The, it's a Jimmy Reed cover. Um, yeah, he's in he's on Bright Lights, Big City. He's got yeah. Centuries and on Bright Lights, Big City, which is one of my favorite solo Fagan songs. Those trucks in the street, is it really Monday? Time to find some trouble again. Make a beat for romance, while the dollars stand the chance. From love in the city, and centuries and 
I, I think that's the only place that it is, is that soundtrack album and like YouTube. Now. Yeah. Uh, but like as, you know, as the recording technology and as the digital age is really kind of ramping up, right? Like through the 80s, you know, CDs are about to hit uh, and then into the early 90s. Um, as the recording process becomes so much simpler and seems like it would suit like their mania and their perfectionism so much better with all of the, the new tools, they still are, you know, like they're not getting back into gear, you know, um, until, you know, the early 90s, mid 90s when they come back together and Walter participates in Kamakiriad and Donald participates in Tracks of Whack and then they reunite and start playing shows again. Um, I don't know, it's, it's always been sort of a fascinating lost decade-ish to me. Uh, from 82 to 93, really, for both of them. Um, but I guess, you know, they just needed to sort of reset and uh, find their find their self or find their centers, and Walter had to go to Hawaii and become an avocado farmer. And he built an incredible <laughs> studio, too. There's, like, you know, uh, studio magazine stories about it, like, that it's it's all, it's a state of the arts. No, I don't, I think it's no longer there. Mm. Um, but, like, he builds this incredible facility uh, that gets written up, and there's, like, a lot of great pics of him in, like, the, you know, the Hawaiian shirt kind of at the console kind of with his uh, incredible yes, I've seen thing. those. Those pictures are incredible. It's it's sick. There's just a sick so aesthetic. Happy. <laughs> just, just, yeah, yeah I'm. Just chilling in Kauai, like it's you know I I that that's yeah. that like that's the great part of it. I love that Walter had a few years of, of that and a few years of of kind of peace and tranquility and getting to you know to sort of and, and had a I hope had a sense of you know his, his his kind of importance. You know, there's a there's that moment in in when Ricky Lee Jones wrote about him after he died. They she wrote about a, a conversation that that they had where she wanted to take a production credit on I think Flying Cowboys, mm. which he had produced. Like, and she wanted a co-producer credit as as the artist. And he sort of argued argues against he, like his argument against it is very you know it's a very sort of passionate. It's like this is you know essential. I think it's like you know this is what I this is what I do. This is me sort of building this back. Like I I, I need this for my you know for myself. You know how how that happens. Like he he I think he you know with that that work. It's really interesting that he that that's that I'm not articulating this well, but there's a moment that you know there's a moment in in his career where I think he feels like he has to build back whatever he had about you know whatever sort of his bona fides were. And so sure. he goes and he's like, he's basically, oh, I'm still under contract to I, I guess MCA. like uh, is there anybody I can produce? And they give him China Crisis right. And he makes that great China Crisis right. record that has Black Man Ray on it, which is the one you know like and it, like, teaches them to add a fourth chord to every song and you know to, like walter beckerizes <laughs> them and i love that i love that stage in the novel like that would be an amazing sort of chapter of the novel of the story of of becker and fagan is that mm -hmm. that period in becker's life where he's he's trying to you know i think kind of atone for fucking up like the golden goose a little sure. bit and like for being that you know uh, being being the, the sort of for having it all and losing it all and 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 trying to build it back you know I, I i love that time and i wish there was more music from it because I, I you know i was just listening to 11 tracks of whack the other day again and was thinking like what a you know incredible album that is i wish there were five of those yeah i'm a psycho about that album at this point like i just <laughs> down in the bottom is like maybe of, of every song that either of them ever participated in solo and steely dan together uh that might be my <laughs> my number one with a bullet at this point um but uh 
another Tom terrible cover, by the way. I, I think it's a beautiful cover with the <laughs> with that weird washed out, like stilted image of Walt, and he's in the Dockers and like the button down shirt with the shades. I think that is that is distinctly 1994 uh, energy. Um, well, one other question that's been sort of fascinating to me, you know, as a listener of Steely Dan music, and uh, also because you raised this in the book, uh, particularly in the Gaucho chapter, you know, about the song Gaucho is like the element of um, personal, you know, kind of songwriting that they're doing, which personal songwriting is not really something that they are known for, certainly throughout the initial run. And yet by the end of it, um, I think uh, uh, you make the the argument that like Third World Man is a really great summation of the entire project, you know, a great note to, to end on this total downer 70s ending. Um, and Gaucho, the song, seems to be, potentially could be, uh, a Don writing about his relationship with Walter uh, and, and um, you know, his lack of relationship with Walter even by that point. Um uh, just curious how you conceive of uh, uh, this artist, this songwriter, um, who seems so interested in keeping the audience, you know, at arm's length, at a distance, um, and yet there are these little, like, apertures throughout the career where you can kind of get a little, you know, a sliver of light um, uh, coming from inside his mind. Yeah, and I, I, I could be entirely wrong, and if I ever talk to Donald Fagan about this, he might tell me I'm... I'm absolutely bullish. I'm, <laughs> I'm all the way off which i i would accept of, of course if that if that were the case but yeah i i feel like there's like gaucho is about like many steely dance songs it's about a, a a relationship that can't function because of a third person being involved a metaphorical third person in this case it's it's two it's two people and this kind of flamboyant figure the gaucho <laughs> who one of them has has brought home uh has picked up this this you know uh odd gentleman and 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 brought them into the space and the narrator of the song gaucho is is saying basically he can't be here this is going to ruin everything we're trying to do everything we're trying trying to build uh whatever whatever that is and it's a uh, you know it, it, like the gaucho could be a person the gaucho could be drugs it's some person who's a force who's come into the who's disrupting like the, you know the the potential of uh, you know everything that can be achieved here and i i think it's if it's not a personal song it's interesting that the moment that song comes out of donald's mind is when this is all happening when steely dan have just put out asia their biggest record and they're following it up with like the, the the you know another great big record potentially that they're working really hard on and Meanwhile, uh, what's going on in Walter's personal life is kind of consuming him and like he's no longer able to, you know, really contribute in, in that same way. Mm -hmm. And so I'm probably being it's probably a sentimental and overly romantic vision of, of that, of, of what the, the, the moment was like for Steely Dan. And that lyric could be really old. I don't know. But it's it sounds good. It feels right somehow that like that is a veiled personal thing and i sort of i think this is like i mean i think that in a way that's the most it's the most far-fetched assertion in the book it's the thing that requires you to kind of make the biggest sort of leap is to imagine that that's donald calling out to walter in in some way mm -hmm. you know that like he would do something like that he doesn't seem like that kind of guy they're not like a rumors fleetwood mac kind of band writing songs about each other back <laughs> and forth 
in that in that way that some people did they're not diaristic songwriters but i, I think that there's you know I, I i like you know i like thinking about the sort of the the story of steely dan as ultimately like you know not just like not just like one songwriter's story but the story of this friendship and uh, you know there's on on gaucho it's you know and what i love about it is that the song where they where that really comes to the fore is this ridiculous song gaucho that i like <laughs> it's it's i find it i think it's i think it's homoerotic in a little in a, in a way it's like Absolutely. i always think of it as it's uh -huh. it, it's totally two guys you know and then a third guy and this sort of very strange you know <laughs> sort of like <laughs> this like i'll drop him near the freeway you know and then there's this description <laughs> of him like that there's you know i, I there, there's a shot in uh, the new season of barry of of noho hank Mm -hmm. And what he's, how he dresses when he's retired to Santa Fe with Cristobal, his uh, his boyfriend, and is his Santa Fe look with the serape and a, a hat, a big broad kind of gaucho hat with a gold <laughs> chain. I feel like that's Bill Hader and Alec Bergen, whoever costume design. I feel like there's something like that is the gaucho, like Noho Hank in that scene is how I picture <laughs> the gaucho is just this weird, you know like lynchian almost uh, goofball that that they're like and he he can't be here he's gonna you know something it's something about it the heavy rollers are going to find out that he's here and it's, <laughs> it, we, we you know this is a, a pivotal moment for us in, in the story so yeah I, I i that one you know it it means a lot to i've invested a lot of meaning in it but i'm i'm, I'm sure fagan it's it you know will, will set me straight one of these days i hope yeah. that happens I'm, yeah. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, we I should be so. so. We should be so lucky. You should be so lucky. Um, I do. I do buy that though. You know, I, I think that it, it's significant that as Walter starts to like fade, you know, from Donald's pres or from you know uh, Donald's side, you know, towards the end of Steely Dan and then into the Nightfly, which is overtly personal and diaristic and informed by his own experience. Like, and it's significant that that I think Donald is starting to lean more on this potentially personal songwriting approach uh, as he only has himself to work on because Walter is, as we see on 11 Tracks of Whack, you know, Donald's the one singing a lot of these songs, you know, all of the songs basically up until the very end. Um, uh, but Walter, I think, is, is uh, you, you describe it in the book somewhere as like, they are, they're, they're the perfect pair because there's, there's the laconic one and there's the even more laconic one. And Walter is the even more laconic one as acid tongued as donald is uh walter is that times 10 yeah he was the guy who i think probably would you know it, it, fagan probably didn't have the experience of someone being darker and funnier than him very often and i think that's the foundation for a, a, a lasting friendship like there's somebody <laughs> you know and he's even he's it, like he was more you know uh, he was in some ways i think you know walter was the yeah, he was more Donald Fagan than Donald Fagan was. And, right. you know, I think that's, pure I'd uncut like Fagan. Pure uncut. Yeah, I, I like. Yeah, that's. I I wish we had. You know, we have Donald's memoir. I so wish. I'm so sad that we don't have Walters because I feel like he had some kind of. I don't even know some sort of Bruce Sterling meets Chet Baker. You know, kind of saga to tell about everything that happened but it's also at the same time it's in a steely dan way it's kind of cool that we don't know that we have to sort of imagine what you know what that felt right. like so much obliqueness 
Absolutely. And for a very non-oblique individual, Walter, with his cherubic face and his uh, big uh, grandpa librarian glasses and his either extraordinary long, you know, down to his ass hair in the 70s or his, uh, you know, kind of cute, kempt dad look in the 90s. Um, Well, thank you both so much for joining today and rapping about the Dan, talking through everything. Uh, if uh, people out there want to follow along, read the book, get the book, attend some of the exciting book-related events that are coming up, can we do a little plug-in shillin? On May 23rd, we will be in New York City, that New York City where, where Daddy no longer lives, <laughs> at P&T <laughs> Knitwear. Uh, we'll be talking with Nomi mm-hmm. Fry about the book live and that's a ticketed event i think i think you got to buy something uh so go on our you know any of our socials me or joan i think you'll find it it's there's a there'll be yes. i think i have it's my pin tweet and you'll yes. you can it's all the info and it is free but you need to reserve your place or you can pre-order you can buy a ticket where you pre-order uh the book and they will have it there for you to pick up and for us to sign so those are the two those are the two options for for admission to that. Yeah, so we'll be defacing your book uh, live and talking yes. about it, and then yep. uh, we'll be yep. in Brooklyn with Jason Diamond at Unnameable Books the next day, the twenty fourth. Mm-hmm. Double us, double a double wonderful dose of Quantum Criminals uh, for for New York City, mm-hmm. um, and then we're going to be doing stuff uh, through the uh, through the end of May. Um, uh, there's going to be, uh, yeah, we're doing a virtual event with Elizabeth Nelson from the paranoid style. It's going to be very cool. That is everybody, you, regardless of where you are, uh, you can come to that. And that, that information is out there. You're doing Los Angeles, Chicago, mm-hmm. Portland, uh, Seattle. Oh, and Joan, uh, you have a, like for the London, for the Londoners. Yeah. One international event, uh, June 7th at photo book cafe, which is, Great place in Shoreditch. Um, there's a gallery, and I will have a lot of prints uh, available of paintings from the book, as Ooh. well as a couple of paintings that have been used. Um, I am still putting something together, which will be in New York, that is a show of all of the paintings. Um, I've still never seen these in person, and I can't wait. At some point, actually, yeah, I they're they're they are in two giant portfolios in a closet on the Upper East Side, so <laughs> we can make that happen. They're at Doctor Warren Kruger's office, right? And they're, they're in, it's exactly mm-hmm. where they should be. That's right. Somehow, uh huh. It feels like yeah, they should be the, the 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 only the appropriate thing that would happen is you know sort of some sort of a high end art thief breaking in uh, you know, at this point but i hope that doesn't happen that would be yeah. the most danish thing that would happen <laughs> <laughs> yeah the paintings uh, are really incredible and all all the fa- all your favorite characters are here folks dr warren kruger rose darling napoleon the archbishop um uh, mm. uh cousin dupree uh um mr lepage it's uh it's a real rogues gallery of images here even the wendell itself is i I don't know if it's painted or sketched one of the two but everything's everything is a gouache painting on watercolor paper wow all of the characters are 18 by 24 and the uh all of the other spot illos and the um player paintings are 
uh what are they nine by 12 i believe but they're all they're all gouache um this guy I, on fuck, paper. I fucking hate this guy he was <laughs> the, the dandy of uh-huh, gamma kai yeah. looks like the biggest shithead yeah. you can possibly imagine yeah the, the 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 darkest detail on that is that he's got a uh pill bottle of you know oh, roofies in his hand i see that so now, yeah behind the uh the road <laughs> yeah yikes oh nailed There's it on that one dark he's brought the party with him dark bits in there yeah yeah. Oh, well, thanks again, Alex and Joan. Uh, and, you know, obviously follow follow the authors uh, and artists uh, online as well. We'll put links in the description of the episode to Instagram and Twitter profiles. We'll put a link to purchase the book, which once again is Quantum Criminals, Ramblers, Wild Gamblers, and Other Soul Survivors from the Songs of Steely Dan, available now, I guess, wherever you get your books. Thank you, Ian. Thanks to to both the Joker men. We appreciate you. 